0: And yet we're also introduced to some of the bad news part of the story. And throughout uh, these first three chapters, as really through any story, we're introduced to the key characters. Uh, we're introduced to the setting and the scene. Uh, we're introduced to the hero and the antagonists, and it's the same thing here in Genesis 1, two and three. And in order for us to truly understand the good, truly really understand the gospel, we have to understand the bad news part. Of the story. And so the story begins with with great beauty, great poetry. Genesis chapter 1, the the creation story is outlined to us in in a seven day period. And so we we get a picture of, of what this was like of God ordering the world, taking the chaos that was there and reordering it and developing something that was beautiful. And so we have the waters that are teeming with life, and we have sea creatures, great and small, who are created. Uh, we have the land that is ordered, and we have vegetation that's growing and, and trees. Uh, we have light that, that separates the seasons and separates the darkness from the light into days. And we have all of this growth, all of this potential, all of this beauty. But then in Genesis chapter 2, we get a different version of the story, a different a scene that we see. And in that, we find out that not, as, not everything is completely lovely, there's a few different things that we see here, not just God's goodness in the creation, but you'll also see some of the dangers of creation, what ends up developing, and this bad news that comes about. And this is only really one part of the story, this beauty of creation. And you and I experience it. I mean, even this last week when we thought about all the different weather patterns that we had just in the course of a couple of days, from hail to snow to bright blue sky and sunshine, We look outside and we have trees that are budding and flowers that are ready to go. And all of us are hoping, longing that spring will actually come. And we look out and we see the white-capped mountains. and, And we think this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's God's creation. But at the same time, we look at other parts of our world and we recognize that not everything is good. There is violence. There is sickness. There is disappointment. There's injustice and oppression and deception. There's wickedness that is caused. There's bad things that just seem to happen for no reason. There's evil and there's despair. And you've lived it and I've lived it. I'm sure we could share stories about our disappointment with life, the challenges that people have faced, things that have happened in the distant past, things that are on the horizons that that make us feel this, this sense of worry and anxiousness. We've watched uh, funerals. We've been there. We've seen marriages broken apart. Uh, You and I have seen diseases rip apart people who are healthier than we are. We've experienced broken trust and broken promises. We know what it feels like to be lied to and to be bullied. We know what it feels like to wrong someone else and really not have much power to correct what we have done. We know that our world, as beautiful as it is, is full of its daisies, but we also know that there are corners that are full of sticker bushes. It's just the reality of our world. There's good news and there's bad news of it. But why? Why? Why is there both loveliness and why is there both repulsiveness at the same time? How can our world produce such joys and how can we then endure the, the difficult things of despair? Well, every religion, every worldview is forced to to answer these questions. It's the question of evil, the question of bad news. Why do these things happen? And if a worldview or or a religion chooses not to address this question, we'd say, well, that's either completely irrelevant or that a religious group is basically just deceiving themselves if this doesn't exist. So all all the ones that we would say that are justified, they would have to answer this question. Now, some religious groups will say, well, you know what, all these ideas of of there's hopelessness and there's evil and there's despair and there's all this this tragedy, that's actually just an illusion of the mind. It doesn't really happen. It doesn't really exist. We've just tricked ourselves into thinking that these are are bad things in our mind. Other religious groups will say, well, it's really about cause and effect. All the good things happen to good people and the good that they've done. All the bad things happen to bad people and what... Another say, no, it's a little bit more complicated than that, Uh, but in the grand scope of things, when we look at reincarnation, then there is justice. Someone may endure a lot of difficulties in their life, but that's just because their previous life, they, they did poor things, or their future life, they will. And so when we look at it at a grand scope, we understand why things are the way that they are. Well, the Christian story, the biblical story, says something completely different. It it tells us the brokenness of our world, and it also tells us about our own brokenness. It tells us the truth about the bad news part of the story, because the bad news is what makes the good news possible. Well, our text this morning is in the book of Genesis, which is probably no surprise to you. And we're going to be looking at chapter 3. And most every time I preach on the book of Genesis, I like to give credit to John H. Walton, who's a, a biblical writer. And, uh, and he's written an excellent commentary on Genesis, and so most of what I have uh, prepared this morning is, is due to his wisdom on this chapter and on this subject. And whether you've been going to church for your entire life, or whether this is one of your first Sundays in a church, I'm guessing that you recognize this story, and you've heard this story, maybe told a little bit slightly different than what you'll read here today, but I'm, I'm guessing that this is familiar to you. And this story creates a ton of questions. And this is how it begins. Chapter 3, verse 1 in the book of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So the first thing that, that we get here in the story is we're introduced to the serpent. And up, up to this point, all, all the people, all the subjects in the story, we have the Lord God who created everything. Uh, we have the man and we have the woman. We know that there's fish and, and animals and vegetation and all this sort of thing, but this is the first animal that's named to us. And the animal is a serpent. And really, all that we know based on this verse is that we know that the serpent is an animal. It's one of the wild animals. Not really different than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. But there's one word that the author uses to describe the serpent, and the word is crafty. The text says more crafty. I think proper English would be craftier or the craftiest of any of the wild animals. But in any case... Crafty is the word that's used to describe. Now, for those of us who have read the story and know this story and knows how the story ends, we generally think this is a negative word. But in reality, this is a neutral word. Crafty is neither bad or good. It depends on what the person does with this skill. There's a few synonyms that come along with this, and your Bible may have a different word here. Cunning is another word, and shrewd is another word. And we look at the book of Proverbs later on in the Bible, shrewdness is a desirable attribute. And so we can't really look at the serpent and say, well, we have our protagonist here. We have the bad guy. It is this serpent. When we're introduced to him in the first verse, all we know is that this serpent was shrewd, clever, cunning, crafty. Finishing out verse 1 then, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, what the serpent is doing here is he's asking the woman, Eve, a question, and he wants the woman to paraphrase what God has told the man and the woman. He's being pretty crafty. He's somewhat cunning here. And if you go back in your Bibles to Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17, you'll find out what the Lord God said to the man. He said to the man, you may eat your fruit. eat from any tree in the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So this is what the man was told by the Lord God, and the serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So he's looking for her response to what the Lord God told the man and the woman. Now again, the serpent is smart. He's crafty. So he's, he's asking the woman to give a paraphrase And what ends up happening is he's hoping here that she will somehow misrepresent, at least that's what we can conclude from the rest of the story, that she'll somehow misrepresent what the Lord God says. And this is what she says in verse 2. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Much has been said about the... that the woman includes here. In fact, uh, I'm sure many of you remember those games when you were a child or other child where you put up the two pictures and it's the find the differences game. And you've got one picture and it's a beach scene and there's a beach ball in one and there isn't in the other. And uh, one person has a sunglasses on in one picture and they don't in the other. And you say, find the differences. If we were to do this from what the Lord God said to the man and what the woman said, it'd be pretty obvious We find out the woman includes something. You must not touch it. And we get this sense that the woman understands this command, or at least communicates this command, as being overbearing. Not only can we not eat from this tree, we can't even touch it. And it's an important point. And it makes me think sometimes, how often do we really know the commands of God? Do we truly know what he wants us to do and why it's important, why it leads to life? Or do we kind of know a little bit about it and we kind of a few other things, and in the process, it just feels so overbearing, so difficult to understand, so, so wild as far as why we would ever want to obey it. But I want to focus on another thing. It's a small nuance that Eve does here, and this gets pretty technical, uh, but actually it, it's, it's quite important here. Eve alters the disobedience just slightly in this passage. The Lord God had said, When you eat of it, you will surely die. But Eve says, You will die. Now, I know as much Hebrew as I do French, which right now is four words. So thankfully John Walton's done a lot of work here and, and, and he's the scholar in Hebrew, so I'm I'm gonna refer to what he says on this. We've often, and I I say that as as kind of historically the Christian community has often looked at this verse that that God said, you will surely die. And we've interpreted that or understood that as kind of instant, final death. The understanding that when man or woman, when they take and they eat this fruit, they're gonna die. And that's caused a lot of confusion in in this story. Because we find out that they do not instantaneously die. But Walton's looked at that word that's Translated surely here in the NIV and in some other versions, they'll even say, on the day that you do, you will die. And he's found that in, in the verb conjugations, when you look at it other points in the, in the Old Testament, it actually is more like a sentence or a verdict. It's saying that there is certainty in death, but not necessarily immediate death. So Walton suggests that his warning is more like a verdict, and he suggests this instead. When you eat of the fruit, you will be sentenced to death and therefore doomed to die. The understanding is if you disobey, if you eat this fruit, you are doomed to die. What Eve does instead is simply says, you will die. And what happens here is is that the serpent jumps on this slight nuance, and he uses that to his advantage. Verse 4, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the serpent could have challenged God's words directly. He didn't need to ask Eve the question. He could have asked the question and then said, actually, that's not exactly what the Lord God said. This is what he said. But let me tell you why this is untrue. Instead, he focuses exactly on what the woman says. He actually doesn't negate what God says, he doesn't want to deal with God. And next week, we're going to be looking at the evil one, the understanding of, of Satan, Lucifer, the devil, the various names that he have, And we're going to try to unpack what the Bible says about this and why it's helpful for us to recognize in our own life. But the serpent in this story just looks at Eve, asks her the question, and answers her response. Walton paraphrases a serpent statement kind of like this, don't think that death is such an immediate threat. The serpent doesn't deny that Eve will not die. He's not questioning that. He simply implies that she doesn't need to be worried about immediate death, like she seems to indicate. Lord God said, when you eat of it, you'll be sentenced to die. You're doomed to death. Eve says, if we eat it, we're going to die. If we touch it, we're going to die. And the serpent basically says, don't worry too much about dying right away. And it seems like Eve has quite a bit of interest in this. And I mention this nuance here in the scriptures because I think it's very common for us to place a whole lot of blame on the serpent. And the serpent certainly has responsibility in this story. That's, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But uh, based on what we read here, what we have to understand is that this is a choice that Eve makes. She responds with a question. Uh, that question is challenged by the serpent, who is crafty, who is cunning, and then she makes a choice. This, the, what the serpent does does not free Eve of any sort of responsibility from the choice she's about to make. And in verse five, the serpent tells the woman what will happen. He says to her that her eyes will be open, and she will be like God, knowing both good and evil. This is a true statement. We find out this is exactly what happens, and God says this very same thing at the end of chapter three. The serpent has three lines in this, in this story. asks the question, says. Nope, that's not going to happen as you say it. And then says, here is what's going to happen when you eat the fruit. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, we don't have enough time, sadly, to go through the rest of the story. Uh, So I'll give you a little bit of a a summary of what happens. As I mentioned, the serpent's words were true about what would happen. Their eyes were opened, and what they found out is that they were naked. Previously, in in chapter 2, we found out that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. Now we find out that through their disobedience, they have recognized their nakedness, and it leads them to feel ashamed. And God learns of their disobedience and he asks them what happens and he learns the story and then he judges them according to what they have done. He ends up clothing them with animal skins. He banishes them from the garden that they are at. And we don't have time to get into this part of the story, but it's very interesting how the God, how God's uh, rule there is both just and it's extremely gracious and how he treats the man and the woman. And this story provides us with a lot of questions. If you were to pick up a commentary on the book of Genesis and look at just the first three chapters, you'd probably be two 250 pages into the book and we're still there. And it, we can talk about all sorts of different questions about you know, what was the nature of the serpent and, and what happened there and what was the timeline and why didn't the man do something? He's there the whole time and, and who's really the guilty party and, and all this sort of stuff. But, but the question that keeps popping into my mind when I think about this story is why did they do it? Why did Eve choose to eat the fruit? When it comes down to it, like, why? God said no, and she ended up eating the fruit. Was it their curiosity, the man or the woman's? Was it a a premeditated act of rebellion? Uh, Was it because the serpent was just such a great salesperson, sales snake, whatever we, we we would call the serpent? That, that she couldn't help but be enticed by what he suggested. Was it their desire for independence? They were tired of being in the garden. They wanted to see what else was out there. They were ready to make decisions on their own. Was it their frustration over God's command? Maybe it didn't make sense to them. Maybe it felt overbearing. Maybe they were just plain tired of it. Why did they disobey God's instruction? Well, this is a question that's both fascinating to me and relevant to the story. But I'm reminded that I should probably spend more time asking myself the question of why I disobey rather than why Eve and Adam chose to disobey. Because as much as I would like to look at the story and say, why didn't they do that? It's just as relevant to look at my life and say, why do I do that? As much as I'd like to say that this story is about them, this story is really about me. It's about all of our stories. We know what disobedience feels like. We've probably not had a snake talk to us. We've probably not been enticed by fruit on a tree that is forbidden. But we know what temptation feels like. We know what it feels like to to have that desire in our hearts. We know what it feels like when our tongue wants to say something and we feel like we just kind of have to get it out of our system. We know what it feels like when the temptation gets stuck in our mind and it's all we can think about. We know what it's like to heed our conscience. We know what it's like to ignore it. We know what it's like to choose and to battle the thoughts and the choices that we have. And we know what it's like to make those decisions and to do things on our own terms. Now, we can't know for sure why Adam and Eve chose to disobey, but what we do know in this story is that it was their choice. God created them with free will. They could choose to eat whatever tree they wanted to. They could choose to believe temptation. They could take whatever action they chose to make. The serpent didn't make the choice for them. He was crafty. He had a, a good argument. But the serpent did not force them to eat of the fruit. God did not force them to eat from the, from the fruit. Uh, God gave Adam and Eve the choice to make that decision on their own. And they chose independence. They chose to disobey. They chose, instead of depending on God, to choose to depend on themselves. And it's the same story for me and you whenever we choose to, do, to disobey. We choose me. We choose us. We choose to do it our way. Now, for years, the story of Genesis 3 has been viewed as a tragedy. Hundreds and hundreds of years, people have read this story and they think, oh, if only Eve hadn't eaten that piece of fruit, if only Adam had intervened, if only that snake weren't allowed to talk, then maybe things would be better. Or they don't even play that game and they just think, that's terrible. This is just sad. God creates this, this perfect world and, and the first humans disobey. And you know what? It's sad in my life too. Because when I look at my life and I think of all the, the choices that I've made to diso- disobey God, it leaves me feeling sick too. It's this idea of regret or of remorse. But the story is viewed differently today. There's a number of authors, there's a number of individuals who have a little bit of a different take on this story. And they think that maybe this isn't all that bad. It's not necessarily that that disobedience is seen as, as being a good thing, but it's the idea that independence is something that should be treasured. Eve made her choice. Adam made his choice. Good on them. Is there anything better in our world today than for an individual to follow their heart? We talk to family members, co-workers, neighbors. We watch TV shows. Isn't that just the best things? I don't know what to do. Follow your heart. What feels right for you? Is there anything more commendable than that for someone who chooses to live life their way? For someone to escape whatever bondage they feel that they've been inflicted by? and to kind of spread their wings out and fly? Isn't that one of the great values of our society? Isn't that what Adam and Eve do here? Isn't this a bit of a microcosm for what so many people in our society today are saying a great course of action? To choose to do it their way, to be independent, not to be dependent on someone else, but to make up their own mind and to do it, and to fulfill their dreams, and to be anything that they choose they can be. Can't we read this story as the greatest liberation of the human species i think we can i think we can look at the story and say that in some sense this is what happens here in this story adam and eve choose to do things on their own and through their disobedience they free themselves from their dependence on god and they choose themselves but what we have to ask is was it a good choice Depending on how you want to shift the scales for what's happening here, and you we say, well, sure, they freed themselves. They, they enacted their own independence. We have to say, was that a smart move? Was it wise for them? And we have to look at ourselves and say, was that a wise move? When you and I choose to disobey God, is that a wise choice or is it a bad choice? Regardless of what it says about our own independence. Well, the greater story of the book of Genesis says quite clearly that no, this was a poor choice. And it can be difficult sometimes for us to read this story and think, who cares? It's a tree. It's fruit. Like, how bad could this be? Sure, God said no, but growing up, my parents said to do a lot of things that didn't make any sense. Make your bed. Who, if I don't make my bed, like, what sort of consequence does this have on the rest of the family? It just seems like one of those things that is not a life-or-death situation. Don't we have that here in Genesis You can eat all the fruit, don't eat that fruit. Come on, God, that's kind of unrealistic. No one's going to die here. But what we see in the Genesis story is that this disobedience, and this is a bad word that I'm about to use, people hate this word, this sin, it has consequences. The next chapter, Genesis 4, there's temptation at the door, and one brother kills the other. There's some, some bad moral consequences there. There's some some bad things that that corrode from there. Genesis chapter 6, God begins to bemoan creation, what he has done. He's remorseful. He says that every inclination of the human species is to do wickedness. And so it's not just about this tree and this apple, or this fruit, excuse me. It's it's this understanding that, that sin, this disobedience, has terrible, terrible consequences. We learn that all of humanity's problems all the struggles in our world are tied to disobedience to God. Our world is plagued by a sin problem. It began with Adam and Eve, and it continues today. And no one likes to talk about disobedience. This isn't a fun message. This isn't one of those popular messages. A number of churches, a number of of teachers and books, they choose not to really talk about this anymore because it doesn't make us feel good. But we need to understand That if we don't face the fact that we live in a broken world and we're the ones to blame, we're just deceiving ourselves. This story teaches us that we're the problem. It teaches us that it's our fault. It teaches us that of our own free will, when we choose independence, there are problems with that. And if we're completely honest with ourselves, we'll look at our own stories and we'll find out that they teach us that we're the problems too. It's the same for Adam and Eve. It's the same for us. When we choose to be disobedient, when we choose to live independently of God and not to depend on him, there's consequences. It creates problems. It leads to broken relationships. It leads to a broken world. Now, this isn't good news. We began this series by talking about the gospel good news. This is bad news. This really is the bad news. And some of you might be wondering, well, why do we need to learn this? Why do we even have a, a Sunday morning where the, the sermon title is the bad news? That doesn't sound good at all, obviously, right? What, why can't we just kind of skip forward and say, okay, sure, you know, whatever happened back then, that happened. But let's focus on the good stuff. Let's focus on Jesus. Uh, let's focus on, on the good news, reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, justification, salvation. What, let's, let's look at this. Well, we have to remember that sin still has an effect on us. We have to remember that disobedience has its consequences. The reason why we need to understand the bad news, the reason why we need to accept the bad news, is because without a problem, we've got no need for a solution. We can't have good news without bad news. And the good news of Jesus doesn't exist without the bad news story of our problem. This story teaches us that we're the problem. I'm the problem, you're the problem we're the problem. And I think if it becomes easy for us to discount this story, to ignore this story, it becomes very easy for us to discount our own disobedience and our own life. If we choose to ignore this story, if we choose to ignore the stories in the Old Testament where we see that that men and women are consistently doing wicked things, if we just kind of ignore that say, well, let's, let's focus on some of the better things that we find in the New Testament, some of the stuff that, that makes us feel better about ourselves and, and that gives us reason to be thankful for Jesus, I think we cheat ourselves. I think we cheat ourselves because then the natural inclination is to say, well, there's nothing wrong with me either too. And if I just, if I just try a bit harder and, um, and, and do a few things with more effort, well, then I'll be okay too. I can do it. Jesus kind of helps me out with, you know, whatever little boost I need, but I don't really have a problem. I don't really have a sin problem. We must remember the truth of this story in the garden. We must remember the truth of our own stories. We must remember that we're in desperate need of good news because our lives are full of bad news. There's a fitting story that many of you uh, probably have heard before about a man named G.K. Chesterton. He was an English writer, wrote a number of different genres, and he lived... Uh, earlier in the 20th century. And so as a writer, uh, he, he did a, a number of publications, and, and during the time between World War I and World War II, the Times newspaper asked him and a number of other authors to comment on a question. And you have to remember, you're between the two great world, world wars, I mean, you're, we're talking about heavy-hitting questions. A lot of people have, have looked at humanity and said, humanity is inherently good. And once we got to that timeline, a lot of people came to the recognition that, that humanity just didn't evolve in the industrial revolution, and all these great things that we were doing. Then we get to the world wars, we find out, wait a second, we may have misthought about the role of, of men and women in our world. Maybe we aren't quite as good as we thought they are. And so the question to Chesterton and to the other authors was this, what's wrong with our world? And his response has become famous. He wrote this, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. This is a man who knew the truth about the bad news of the story. This was a man who understood how crucial it is to realize that he was the problem. If I were in his shoes in that, in that situation, I could have thought of a lot of things to say. Well, it's, it's the greed for power, and, and it's, it's this political movement, and it's the depravity of man, not me, but you know, other people, and it's this and that, and, that. and Chesterton just said, it's me. I'm the problem. And we do a pretty amazing job of casting blame. We're very, very good at this. I find it very interesting when, when I have interactions with people and when you hear stories, it's very, very rare for people to take ownership. I have difficulty taking ownership all the time. I think about disagreements that I have with my wife and, and we talk about it and we think about it and then later on she said, well, you didn't even, like you said, you were sorry, but you didn't really like own up to, oh, well, uh, yeah, you know, you can kind of rationalize. And think, well, because of this situation, I responded this way. I do that a lot. You can talk to my wife about that. What, what happened? Well, because of this, this, and this, the logical conclusion is this, so I acted that way, so I didn't know it would know, hurt your feelings or it would do X, Y, and Z, but you know, I'm kind of justified by my action there. And we look at this story here in the book of Genesis, and God asks the question, did, did you eat the fruit? And Adam says, the woman did it that you gave me. And the woman says, the serpent did it. He deceived me. And the serpent doesn't have any hands. Otherwise, I think maybe the serpent would have pointed somewhere else too. And apparently, the serpent isn't allowed to speak anymore in that story as well. But what would happen if we started to take ownership? Men, women, what happened if we began to take ownership of the fact that we've got problems? That we mess things up? That when we depend on ourselves, Things don't go well. What would happen if we stopped ignoring our disobedience and if we stopped pointing fingers and if we started owning up to our brokenness? What would happen if we developed the habit of saying, it's my fault. I was wrong. I'm sorry. What if we began admitting to God that the biggest reason why we don't obey him is because we trust ourselves more than we trust Him. What if we accepted the fact that the good news is good to us because our lives are so bad? What if we began each day by realizing that the greatest hope we have is to develop greater dependence on God, the God who never fails us? Let's pray. Lord, the truth of this story, the truth of our lives is that we're a broken people. As great as we sometimes think we are, we can't do it. We prove time and time again that when we live in our own independence, that we fail. And things become broken. Relationships, trust. And so God, I pray this morning that we, would truly believe and come to understand the bad news part of the gospel story. The bad news part being that we're sinners and that sin has had an effect on humanity and on creation. And we long to be redeemed. God, I pray that this would create in us a greater awareness, a greater need of the good news of the story. This redemption. And I pray, Lord, that we would take ownership for the times that we disobey you that we would confess our sins to you, that we would confess to each other when we wrong them. Lord, may this be part of our healing process as we look at the gospel, as we explore what the Bible says about us and about you, and as we respond to your grace. Amen.